Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week, coming to us from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, is an old friend of mine, Nate Menji. And Nate, among many things, is a longtime vegan, and so I thought it would be interesting this week to interview him not only about his philosophy on death and mortality, but also on how that applies to the treatment of animals and what we eat and do in our human lives here on Earth. So, Nate, welcome. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Um, and as you probably have heard, we have a standard three-question approach to all our interviews. We ask you to please tell us uh, your name, uh, sorry, not your name, <laughs> your age, where you grew up, and then what generation you belong to, if any. Okay. Uh, no, so my name is Nathan Menji. I am 41 years old. And, um, okay, generation. Uh, I was actually just Googling this. I always forget the name of it. But there's like a sub-generation that some people pose it that exists the Xennials between generation x and millennials for the people who um i guess i mean because i'm not like not sarcastic and and cynical but uh i also know how to use technology significantly well and like it's like a foundational piece of my life um which is not necessarily true for a lot of gen x people and that's sort of the experience of, of being on that cusp um, yeah, so I, I kind of like that sort of sub idea that, that people who, who like your foundational childhood is without the internet, but then your teenage and into like early adulthood is, and how that actually makes for a completely different sort of behaviors because you have the older style upbringing and like the disconnectedness and like just go outside and play. And then you have the connectedness of the uh, um, the internet uh, in like late teens and college years. Um, and then what's the, oh yeah, where I'm from? Uh, yeah, so the uh, sort of irony on that is that I also grew up in rural Pennsylvania on a farm, um, and like just being like technically oriented from that that life seems almost uh, counterintuitive, I guess. Yeah, and you know, it's amazing because I met you in college at the University of Pittsburgh, and um, I think you were a sophomore, I was a freshman, that's not too relevant, but my point is, you were like literally the first person I'd ever met in my life who was from a farm, because I'm from like the Bay Area, and you know, we have farms in California, tons of them, but they're not in that area, and so I'm as curious today as I was then, and I think our audience will enjoy hearing it. I mean, when you say you're from a farm, are we talking like literally like wake up and milk the cows, like there's a rooster, like like to what extent are the stereotypes slash what you experienced... Um, intersecting yeah uh okay so the stereotype particularly if you go older stereotypes is more fitting um because it's small compared to like what a modern farm is now like modern farms like these massive industrial well most of the time are these massive industrial undertakings of giant machines and like huge amounts of acreage um we did have a you know a rooster that would crow annoying little bastard um we had chickens at one point um we had ducks we had uh, black Angus cattle, which were raised for beef. Uh, we didn't, I didn't milk cows because that's like Holstein cows. That's your like typical black and white pattern cow. Um, yeah, those, those are the ones you milk. We didn't have those. We had the solid black, the like a little bigger, a little more muscular, uh, which you might expect from them being purposely bred for, for beef production. 
uh, what else do we have? We had sheep and goats, we had horses, uh, and all this on like not not a ton of space really. Um, like, I honestly don't know how many acres it was anymore because that's just like the time in my life where I knew what an acre was and the time in my life that I was on the farm are like completely independent. I'm actually really interested in this, especially now that we're like almost moving back towards like agrarian like lifestyles. Like people want to have their own small farms. You know, there's a lot of like movements to kind of go back. So what uh, of all the animals and of all the experiences you had with animals, which animal was your favorite? Well, I mean, we had dogs, right? I mean, it's hard not to love dogs uh, on sort of the top of the, the animal pyramid of things. Um, but, you know, ignoring like the, the obvious like um, companion animals, goats are, are kind of they're both they're both absolutely fantastic, particularly baby goats are the absolute best. And it is one of the things I do miss. Uh, adult male goats are possibly the most disgusting animals on the planet. <laughs> do tell. They will. Um, I mean, it's just part of their mating rituals that they will urinate on their faces. And then this is this is what attracts the ladies. And, and like. They will also come up and rub against you, like you human being, with their urine-soaked beard, and it's just like it. Like um, to this day, as a result of like like the smell of goat, particularly like things like goat cheese that like are what I would encounter now in my life. Like that smell, like you could take the smell. Like I don't know if you're familiar with the uniqueness of the smell of goat cheese, or it's like just me and my own like personal mania no i had it last night i'm I'm tracking so like take that smell of that cheese and like just multiply it by a thousand and that's what like a male goat smells like like just so nasty i mean and, and to me at least it's so nasty because i'm so familiar with it in the in the concentrated form but yeah but baby goats oh man baby goats are like the absolute best oh that's cool um and so then to kind of complete my like tour through i'm a city boy cliche fun questions um you're also like a programmer and you're incredible i mean this is me you're my friend but you're incredibly intelligent and you like work in programming and 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 you're like of that mindset so were you like the kid who like goes home from school to a farm and like does his tasks and then goes inside and like takes apart the Atari or like what, like when did that other side of your personality take it, uh, take hold? All right. I want to take the long way of explaining this because there's a piece of what's not apparent in the story is my, particularly my dad. Um, so like I'm, I'm six years old and we, we bought this farm and my dad is only 19 years older than I am. Um, but so he buys this farm and we start running it. He's, He's still working a day job, but then he's also going to night school while we're all doing this. Um, so he he proceeds to get himself a bachelor's in engineering, uh, as well as then on to a master's degree after that, all, all while doing like raising me, uh, operating the farm and working day job. And it's actually him really that um, he brought home a uh, an Intel 286. Um, that we built, like, I mean, that's the processor in it, but we've, we've built a computer basically, um, like way back, this is before like into even like Windows 3.1 existed. Like I was running the original Microsoft DOS on it, I think, because it's so long ago. And that's sort of what really did it. Like we put that together and then I started using a computer at the really like um, low fundamental levels on a routine basis because of that. Um, and I guess, um, yeah, I guess I'll just state it cleanly. I, I hated the farm. Uh, I really um, would would never ever think to go back to it. And like you had mentioned, how there's like a 
a move to go back to that for some people. And like, I am assuming that those are only people who have never worked on a farm. It is, it is the least rewarding work you could ever do. Uh, like monetarily, it's, it's unrewarding. If you were trying to be off grid, I guess it becomes a thing, but like it is. Um, and, and I, so some of this slots into what, I mean, like me found, foundationally, I'm, I'm vegan and slots into that is like, it's really hard to maintain a, a non-objectifying opinion of animals when you're going to raise them for slaughter. Uh, and like, so there's just like kind of these obstacles and these things you have to like do things with every day to like get your investment out of them. And I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't like that thinking at all, but it's like, I, I feel like you really have to do it to, to run a farm effectively because you care too much. Like, I mean, I can't even imagine what people, if there are, if there are legitimate farmers who care about their animals in a real personal way and then send them to the slaughter, like, I have no idea, like, what kind of, like, mind that, 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 that would allow for that, really. But um, I digress, I guess. No, you don't digress. And actually, you're, like, leading the podcast in the exact direction I wanted. And if you're, you're 100% touching on what I wanted to ask you about, because these are the questions that I've always wondered. And... I mean, I'm going to speak about you real quick, and then you can tell me if you think I'm full of it, but you're like a very kind and sensitive person. You're very like sensitive to the feelings of others. You notice when people are in pain. Um, and I remember early on in college, you sticking up for people when like no one else was. And that was always, you know, something I was um, magnetized towards that sort of behavior and those kind of people. So um I've watched you quote unquote grow up just like you've watched me grow up from like an 18 year old to a 40 year old. And, uh, in that period when you became vegan, I remember just thinking like, holy cow, pun intended. Uh, <laughs> this guy was not only like, like on a farm when I, you know, I met him like two years after removed from that. And I'm from the Bay area where people are vegans. And so I just, it blew my mind that like you became one without like, from my knowledge, any sort of like peer group or like pressure. So can you actually talk about like the precise moment where you like heard that term, liked that term and wanted to explore it? Uh, I don't know if I can, honestly, I, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't really remember. Um, I think it was a little bit of the, the sort of like punk rock crowd. Um, like I think that's where I was first exposed to it. And I think my first initial thoughts was like, um, I, I, yeah, like, sure, I guess, like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I wasn't, like, super enthralled by the idea of it. And, and I guess it, it's kind of worth mentioning, like, the way I got into veganism was, like, realizing I was one day, like, not really planning to. Um, part of it, too, is just not having money in school. Like, I was eating beans and rice and, and, like, you know, all the cheap staples. And, like, I wasn't buying milk. Like, I was, I was drinking water and cooking rice and beans, like like three meals a day, basically not only eating one meal a day as well. So, um, but like, yeah. And I think I just like kind of realized I was at one point and, um, I didn't really, uh, I like it wasn't like an epiphany or anything. It was just like, well, like, all right, cool, whatever. I'm just going to do this now. And like, then I considered like doing it for like actually talking about it, like, and like, um, associate myself with that identity, I guess, a little bit. Well, and so I, I'm about to start asking you the heavy hitting questions about death and stuff. But the one last thing I want to say for our audience, because this is a audio resource, 
Uh, you would think by Nate's description that he's some like scrawny guy who like, you know, just all skin and bones. You're actually like muscular and you lift weights and you work out and you hash, which is something we probably don't have time to get into, but it involves running and drinking. <laughs> um, so like, I think that's very important because I think a lot of people very, very aggressively and negatively stereotype vegans as like not getting enough protein, not having enough. So real quick, I don't want to get too far into it, but can you explain like if that's easy or is that like difficult to, to be a vegan who actually like lifts weights and, you know, exercises a lot and does those kind of things? Um, I think it's, I, like, we have the advantages of the first world now. Well, not that we ever weren't in the first world, but just the things that are available in the first world right now. Um, like really, really protein rich food all the time is available like constantly. Uh, you know, like you're, you're undoubtedly aware of like impossible and like beyond burgers and like, like those things are so freaking fantastic. Like, the, the the predecessor of of vegan burger like things were like these patties of like vegetables like kind of like put in a blender and formed into a a roughly patty shape which were really terrible like in hindsight but I would eat them um, I mean the, the ideal nutrition you want for working out I don't think is available in a whole food form for vegans. Like you can eat a lot of you can eat a um, you can eat a lot of protein. Like it's not hard. It is hard to eat a lot of protein and not also eat a lot of starch for vegans if you're eating whole foods. Like, and I'm, I'm considering that as being a more healthy lifestyle in general, which I try to do. Um, but then there's things like Beyond Burgers, which I throw in there as well. Um, you know, so I, I think it's it's totally doable. Um, and I think it's it's important to note that there's a lot of people in the third world who are and, and this is actually something I do want to talk about. Um, but in my opinion, are vegan um, because I think there's a there's a an incorrect understanding of what it means to be vegan. Uh, and I actually looked it up so I could. I am. I don't. I am. I'm abiding by your rules of not having a computer or anything in front of me. But I looked it up right before this call just so I would have it to paraphrase in my mind. But the the definition, as was put down by the the vegan society, which was founded in London, I think, in like 19 early 1900s um but it's the 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 philosophy of abstaining from animal exploitation and animal products as much as practical and, and it's the as practical part that i think is really important um i have an anecdote of um uh this person i knew uh through martial arts she went over to africa to do uh peace corps work and she was vegan and i remember when she came back she said well i didn't keep vegan i was there it's like uh, she did until her hair started to fall out. And I was like, no, nah, like, listen, the people there are eating uh, goat products, like, like mostly milk. Like, they're not actually slaughtering a whole lot of goats. They're mostly using them for goat milk uh, because the goats can eat anything. Like, that's one of the properties of being goat. You can literally survive on um, brambles. Um, but, you know, like, they're using goat products because, like, they basically have to to get their all their dietary needs. And I don't see that as counter to the vegan philosophy. I see that as as in parallel with it like the as practical part is a really important part so we, we get caught up in the implementation in the first world and, and that is mistakenly used as the definition of it when i think the the idea and the philosophy of it is, is a much more abstract thing and it's much more personal uh one of the things i really enjoy about veganism is that there isn't really despite there being a, a vegan society there isn't a church of it like there isn't a a holy person telling us these are the commandments of veganism. I, 
I interpret it the way I'm going to interpret it. Uh, and if someone else interpreted it differently, uh, actually yourself, for instance, I know you eat fish and you and I have briefly talked about how like you feel like they don't suffer, they don't feel pain because uh, they lack the uh, pineal system. Is that what it is? Limbic system? One, one of those systems. It might be the CNS. I don't know. I, I learned it from Kurt Cobain and Nirvana, so it's probably wrong. But they, they do have simpler brains than than even like reptiles and um, and and like insects too. Like insects is really uh, so anyway. Um, if they if you feel that they don't experience pain, they don't suffer. Like that isn't in itself. I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. If I were you, I wouldn't go around telling your calling yourself vegan in like public, and like you know, like I eat fish and I'm vegan. But like you know, it's your own thing to interpret. And do as you wish with and, and live within the confines of your own um interpretation of, of the true philosophy and, and not get caught up in the in the implementation that someone else decided to do and like think that that's the definition yeah i really like that um yeah don't get caught up in the implementation um i think that could apply to a lot of things that people argue about right now and probably will argue about in the future um with with that in mind i think it is time to ask you the standard question which is what do you actually think happens when you die? And then we're going to apply that to morality. So for you, I actually have a two-part question, which is what do you actually think happens when you, Nate Menji, die? But also, does that differ from what happens when an animal dies? Are animals' deaths different than humans? No, I, I think, it, okay, I'll start with the first question. What I think happens when you die, I think it's really terrifying um, because I, I don't think death is as clean cut as we like to think of it. Unless you're asleep, I guess, maybe. And then you might maybe just tunnel out and then like the, I guess the primary things would be that the neurons in your brain stop firing to trigger your heart beating, to keep the circulatory system refreshing all the things that need refreshing your body. And like, then the decay cycle kicks in. That's all that happens for us as animals. And that's all that happens with every other animal in, in my mind. Is this a belief you've pretty firmly held your whole life or was this like in the middle of your life you switched to this? I wouldn't say that I switched to it. Um, I think definitely be, being exposed to a lot of death, um, which I guess not even a lot, um, but I mean, just growing up on a farm with, with a, particularly a animal producing farm for slaughter, um, there is a lot of things dying. Um, so that death is definitely a thing I was kind of aware of from a really early state of my life. Um, but then also just, um, you know, education, biology, um, those sorts of things is what's colored it to the point where it is now. Um, I think I would probably, uh, also a bit of, well, no, it's all biology, I guess. Um, but yeah, I think if I didn't have the education I have, I think I would, I could be, I could see myself meandering in the direction of some sort of mysticism. Um, but because I have it, I don't, I guess. That's interesting. So education, I'm going to assume higher education, um, dispelled, the possibility for a belief in mysticism, but um, what precisely in education was it? Was it like Darwinism specifically? Was it some sort of like... Well, I actually want to go back to, you said you assume high, higher education. I think that's not really it either. Um, because education doesn't end when you leave school, right? Like, I, I don't actually think I would have thought, thought this or said a lot of these things to you when we were in college. Um, not because I didn't think them then, but I didn't think them as well-defined like i had i had nebulous ideas that just like the education of life i guess has has continued to um color in the edges on them um to the point that i have 
I don't know that I could even have this conversation 20 years ago, honestly. Like, I, I don't think I would have been able to intelligently um, lay out the way I thought about things because I don't think I had it. I think I had, I had clouds of, of thoughts and now, now I have, I have structures and I can build and like analyze those structures now. So that, that's the education. It, it's all of life really like getting to this point. And like, so who knows where I'll be in another 20. Like, um, I guess ideally I'll have, a well or or a deeper um introspection on these ideas so yeah it'll be interesting to see where that goes and so what about going back to your childhood um did you i'm assuming the answer is yes but i have to ask it to be fair did you actually personally slaughter an animal at any point yes okay and so not not for actual beef i have i have uh used a rifle to put down sick animals okay so only when they were sick yeah Okay, that's interesting. I mean, like, and sick, sick at that level is, uh, is, is really bad. I don't know if it needs clarification or not, but... No, no, it does. It does need it. Yeah, please. Like, this is, like, an animal that is about to die, and we're just gonna, we're just gonna expedite the process. No, um, it, that hits home uh, for a million reasons, but uh, it's, I think that's a very important distinction. So would you say it's fair, then, to say that you've been an animal lover all your life, or an animal sticker-upper for her? Like, how would you classify your relationship to animals? Uh, I mean, most of my life, I would say I hated animals. I, I really hated the farm. I hated taking care of them. Um, I didn't like them dying. Um, and it's not like like them going to slaughter didn't reduce the work. Like, because you don't, that just meant either we were bringing in more, more somewhere else or we were going to breed up the next round. Like it's, farm work is a, is a never ending toil. Um, so I didn't like animals for a huge part of my childhood into my, into my early, uh, college time. I think like I had to get away from it really to, to stop disliking animals in general. I still hate horses. Um, uh, I'll, I'll go into that, um, because that's a whole other topic. Um, but yeah, so it, it took getting away from it and, and, and having it be more of a, abstract thing for me to 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 go back to liking animals i didn't really want to have dogs either uh you know my spouse did um and i, I don't want i don't want to have a dog anymore either because i've gone through four of them since since leaving home and it's just that's too much that's why i have a child essentially like hope i oh god i almost like said a jinxy thing like hopefully nothing bad ever happens there there's wood here i'm knocking on it but he will outlive me and you know, I don't have to deal with that anymore. Well, and actually, it's funny because you mentioned it earlier, but I thought it was really cool that um, it may not have been cool when you're young to have a father who's only 19 years older than you, but it must be really nice now to have someone who's like still young and healthy and robust. Uh, he doesn't take as good, good, good enough care of him in my of himself as I think he should. So uh, I also don't see them. I mean, they they closed that farm down while I was in college, and they moved to Florida. Even even if they were still there, like that's that's four hours east. Though I might see them more often than I do now because it's. It's a whole, you know, it's a whole deal to get down to Florida or or up from Florida here. So I don't see them that often. And it, it's, I mean, it's interesting, like, um, you know, because like at the time when I was a kid, I always thought of him as a grown up doing the grown up things. But like, if you think about it, he was a 20 year old, like putting himself through college. And like he, ha he has a really just impressive career. So it's, it's almost like, I mean, to, I guess kind of to your point, like he is very much like a peer to me now, I feel, despite, you know, being my father. Um, because he is only 19 years older than I am and like I can look at him and like look at what he's done in his career and like be really just impressed with the things he's done um, and like be trying to, to follow on that path to a certain extent although he works way harder than I do which I'm I'm 
this is another aspect of Roma Farm is I don't want to work hard anymore. I, I did that for the age of six to 18. And now I'm all about maximizing the dollars per effort rather than maximizing the dollars. I, uh, I totally understand. And I actually think um, this has been a fascinating interview. It's not over, but I'm, I'm like learning little things about you that I never knew that makes so much sense. Um, and for some reason, the topic of your father like is relevant to me because we talk about like aging and dying and everything. And I think that um, when you talked about like visiting parents and stuff, I'm curious now that you have a son, so you are also a father, like, does it compel you to want a different or to like make the relationship with your own father like stronger or does it not even touch on that? Yeah, I don't, we didn't have a great, we didn't have a great relationship when I was a child. I don't think, um, I think, I mean, he did all these things, but I think it, 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 it cost him in a, in a personal like enjoyment of day-to-day life I, I think it really cost him th- those early years like 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 the span of my childhood um once he was through all of that including like through me going to college and particularly because while i was in college was when he really started to be successful um i think he really changed as a person and became in general a better person um or at least to me more approachable and less stressed, I guess. I, I think a huge part of it was there was a ton of stuff he was doing, which, you know, induced a whole lot of stress on him. That I don't think he was really even necessarily fully cognizant of the, the way it affected him. Um, so anyway, like all that combined, I have a much better relationship with him now than I did as a child. And so kind of like moving into that, like, so I like your your view on death. I don't share it, but I also don't disagree with it. I, I think there might be something in addition to it is how I would explain it. But that's the only reason I'm mentioning this is that there's something sweet about your take because it makes life on earth more special in my opinion. And I think it make it would make me nicer to other people to believe in that. So I'm curious, does your belief actually affect how you treat others or do you think you just inherently treat others the way you do and it doesn't matter? <sighs> Well, no, I mean, I don't think anyone inherently treats anyone pretty well. For for me, at least, it is definitely a thing I try to do, and I'm not I'm not always successful at it. Um, but yeah, so I, I think you have to you have to to know how you want to treat people to really treat people. Wow, this is taught a lot to I guess. I was just going to say like to treat people the way you want to treat them, you have to know how you want to treat them. I guess, but I guess that also is somewhat meaningful in a sense. Like if you're not thinking about how you treat people you're not going to be treating them in a way that you particularly want to. You're, you're reactive. You're not uh, proactive. So, and even that, I feel like I'm more reactive than proactive a lot of the time. I, I, I try, but like, I am also easily um, uh, annoyed, I guess, would be the, the most succinct way to put it. Well, it's funny because we go in and out of contact over the years and we recently got into contact and we got into like two brief arguments pretty quickly. And I kept laughing because I was like, oh, this is what it's like when we were friends when we were younger too. And I think it's because we share that. Like, it's not just you. It's a two-way street. And uh... I think it's everyone, honestly. Like, I, it's so rare to meet someone who legitimately tries to treat people well. And I mean, uh, not that you're seeking it, but I feel like you're one of the better examples of people I know. Like, yeah, I think you go out of your way to try and keep, treat people better and like, like, like consciously some people just some people just do it and i can love those people like there there are really a few people out there i can think of that that absolutely do it and i don't think that they try to do it i think like it is the nature of their being to interact with people this way and you know those are great people 
So now you're getting into my wheelhouse because I too admire those people. And I'm very glad that you put a line between me and them because I agree. And I'm just saying that to my audience as well. I think these people, quote unquote, who are naturally just like nice and good and make us all feel good. I mean, they're basically saints in my opinion. So I am curious. It begs a question from you of all people, which is you said you almost get mystical, but then you don't. When you meet these people, does it is that one of those moments where you almost start to think maybe there is something beyond this? Or is it just like I asked you about yourself, inherent to there? Um, not quite what you're asking exactly, but like I could legitimately believe in auras off of, off of a few of the people I've met. That like just being around this person, like like I don't think they're even doing anything. They're just somehow projecting like a positive aura around themselves. It makes me like want to be there and like hang out with them. Like that that is a legitimate thing. And, and I don't know how to explain that exactly because I, I don't, I, I don't know that there is, I, I'll put it this way, actually, the, definitely the way I would like to phrase it. I don't have the proper education into psychology and psychiatry, probably, to to understand what's happening there. You know what I mean? Like, like they're doing something, whether they're conscious of it or not, and I'm not conscious of what it is. But I think, you know, something's happening, that they are able to do this. Like, some way of their mannerisms and, like, the way they react to people... And they react to to other social stimuli like is doing this, I think. Well, we are running out of time, but I always give my guests a last chance to just speak their mind to the Internet. Um, there's definitely a lot of people listening to this. So um, whatever you want to say, you have the floor. One of the things I think. So going back to to veganism and, and going back kind of to where animals are as as a thing that you should treat well and like have regard for. One of the ways in which animals differ from us, or, or particularly mammals, mammals don't differ from us that much. Like they have the same brain structures we do. The things that are different are the size of the parts of them. And a particular note to me is that the thing that really separates humans apart, uh, and I think the other apes as well, it's not like the amygdala or the hippocampus or the other parts of the brain that do emotions. It's the analytical part, the cerebral cortex, I think it is, the whatever the big big gray wrinkly stuff you know that's where it is like i i don't think animals are free of emotions i think they are as emotional as we are and i've seen this like growing up on a farm i've seen you know mother cows crying when their babies are taken away um and that sort of thing what i don't think they have is the ability to necessarily contemplate their emotions and like they're not going to label their feelings of remorse as remorse or sadness or anything but i don't think that means that they don't feel them Nate, I'm I'm touched by your last answer. I thought it was very profound, like very thought provoking. I have not really thought about two of the nuances you made. Not not only to mention just the overall concept of how arrogant we are about our emotions and separating it from theirs. So thank you, Nate Menji from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, for helping us put another nail in the coffin. Uh, to those of you at home listening along, uh, if you want to do us a favor, please review us on Apple Podcasts and please subscribe and maybe share it with a friend. Either way, we're thankful that you're listening to us and Coffin Talk. And again, my name is Mike Oppenheim, and we will see you soon. Walking alone.